0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Diffusion. Sit back and relax. We have a jam-packed, Vegemite-stuffed science show coming right up. I'm Jackie Hayes. Today we have the effervescent Patrick Ruby interviewing a brave physics teacher and a look at the major math stories of 2008 with the magical Mark West. But before we can get started on any of that, the crazy Calvin Ng has the latest happenings in the world of science.
3: With the inauguration of US President-elect Barack Obama just days away, Obama may be kinder to the scientific community than his predecessor. In December, Obama nominated Dr Stephen Chu, head of the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in California, as his next Secretary of Energy. Dr Chu built up a big solar energy research project at the laboratory and is also an advocate of nuclear power research. He shared the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1997. Obama followed the announcement with the nomination of marine biologist Jane Lubchenco as head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the government agency responsible for studying the climate and marine life. Dr. Lipchenko had been critical of the Bush administration's lack of respect for climate science and for its inaction on greenhouse gas emissions. The new presidential science advisor will be physicist John Holdren, who argued for swift action on climate change when he was president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in 2007. Geneticists also get a look in, with Harold Varmus, a former director of the National Institutes of Health, and Eric Lander from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, both named as co-chairmen of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. These appointments may signal a shift in policy on global warming, energy, and restrictions on embryonic stem cell research. Democrats are already debating whether to overturn these restrictions through executive order or by legislation when they assume control of the government this month. If Dr Chu is confirmed as the Secretary of Energy, he may well need to consider wind power as an energy source. A study published in this month's issue of the journal Energy and Environmental Science ranked wind power as the best alternative fuel to fossil fuels, followed by geothermal energy and tidal energy. Biofuels, nuclear power, and clean coal were at the bottom of the list of 11 alternative fuels. The study from Stanford University calculated the impacts of each fuel if it were to power the entire U.S. fleet of cars and trucks. It also considered the impact the fuels would have on the environment. Professor Mark Jacobson, who led the study, said it would take 30 times more space than wind turbines to grow enough corn to power the U.S. fleet of cars, while bioethanol would produce more greenhouse gases than wind power. Clean coal, the process of burning coal then capturing the emitted carbon dioxide and storing it underground, would emit up to 110 times more carbon than building and using wind turbines only, while nuclear power would produce 25 times more carbon than wind. The findings were presented to the US Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee in October 2008. And finally, a new study suggests that women with higher levels of an oestrogen compound may be more inclined to cheat on their partners. Researchers from the University of Texas found that women with naturally higher levels of the hormone estradiol were more likely to flirt, kiss, and have a serious affair outside of an established relationship. Higher concentrations of the hormone are associated with enhanced fertility, bigger breasts, facial attractiveness, and a low waist-to-hip ratio. Therefore, some scientists have suggested that males have an evolved response to pick up on telltale signs of the hormone's presence. In the study of just over 50 women, those with the highest levels of estradiol reported a greater number of relationships in the past, as well as a greater likelihood of having a serious affair. These women were also rated as the most attractive by a panel of two men and seven women.
0: Thanks very much, Calvin. Now, as someone who holds a physics degree, I know that physics can be both exciting and exceptionally boring. I also know that uh, once you've actually left university, you often have no flaming idea what to do with the rest of your life. But Patrick Ruby has come across Scott Daniel, who has a physics degree, was once part of a circus and also has a flair for adventure. Earlier today, Pat had a chat with Scott about his next adventure.
4: I'm going to be working at um, the Caprivi Education Office. There's the Namibia split into about a dozen different regions and I'm going to be based at one of those regions' education offices and working with all the schools. Um, about 100 schools in that district and supporting the science and maths teachers, um, looking at innovative ways to teach science with really limited resources.
5: So this is a project which involves bringing over volunteers from Australia teaching in public schools but also bringing over midwives and people that fulfil other areas.
4: That's that's right. Australian Volunteers International um, addresses a whole range of uh, development objectives and a lot of those obviously in health and education as well as other areas like um, agriculture and water and gender and government governance for example. In education in the last few years there's been a real push to move away from just having classroom teachers um, because a classroom teacher fills a need but when they leave you need another teacher to take their spot um, and so the strategy has shifted to be more about teacher training so what I'll be doing is rather than just teaching the classroom I'll be supporting existing teachers to do their jobs better as well as looking at working with the um, pre-service teachers as in student teachers um, to help them do, do the best that they can. VSO which is the Volunteer Services um, Overseas which is the UK based aid agency along with AVI have done some research in collaboration with the Namibian government and Ministry of Education about what some of the development issues for that country are and they've foreseen a lack in sort of uh, technical uh, roles like in science and technology so my role would be to support um, the teaching of science and maths in those areas to get more people interested in those subjects and more people studying those subjects at a higher level Um, and in that way it's like a long term strategy to get more people trained in those technical fields.
5: I remember thinking back to school about having um, the standard chemistry experiments, burning a bit of magnesium in a Bunsen burner, and then I I remember physics was a load of maths, which for me was quite dry when I was a student. Um, Taking it out of the classroom, what are some of the things that you think you can do to make things more interesting and appealing for students and make them think about careers in science?
4: Um, I think there's a few different strategies. I mean, when you look at school education, how engaging is it really? When you look at some of the stuff that you can remember from school, some of it is very predictable. You know what's gonna happen before you do it. And so it's sort of an exercise to verify something that you already know. Um, Whereas if you can make science education much more more engaging and much more like it really is in real life where you don't know what's gonna happen. You have a curiosity about the natural world and you wanna find things out and apply that to to help you solve real world problems. If you can introduce that in the classroom, um then I think you get i mean it's teachers are more involved, the students are more involved, so it 's really about using um, trying to find engaging experiences that are really about the kids doing stuff for themselves and the challenge with that really in developing countries, I suppose is that the resources just aren 't there. Uh, I was a volunteer previously in Vanuatu and spent some time with the um, teacher trainers there and we went through all these activities that just used paper and maybe sticky tape and paper and scissors and what have you and at the end th- the teacher trainers this wonderful woman said these are great but some of the schools don't have paper and you have to really rethink um you know my australian perspective on what a low resource school is it's hard like it's hard to think you know what can i do with the really limited materials in vanuatu when we r- ran out of paper we were looking at banana leaves are really really big fibrous mm-hmm. you can sort of cut them up in a similar way um, well there a lot of banana leaves available? <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are lots of banana leaves in Vanuatu. You can use them as plates. You can use them as umbrellas. You can use them to sit on. Mm-hmm. You can use them in science as well. So they're very, very versatile.
5: How you can use
4: them as umbrellas? How big are the banana leaves? They're this big. <laughs> 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 they're, they're about two metres. Some of the bigger ones would be easily two meters long and perhaps 40 or 50 centimeters wide and um, it's really funny in Vanuatu when it's really coming down people will just cut a banana leaf off and be walking around with a banana leaf over their head so you can be innovative with limited materials
5: So it sounds to me that, in a way, you're um, teaching um, a new generation to become little mini MacGyvers, <laughs> being able to to make things, um, technical things, out of objects which you might not normally think of to use in scientific ways. How is it that you got into this in the first place? Did you find that, as a young boy or as a teenager, that you had the MacGyverish qualities where you could make <laughs> stuff out of out of things you might not normally ex um, expect to use or um, is this something that you learned over a, a
4: period of time well i think actually when i was little when i was about six or seven i said i used to want to be a mathematician so i still mm-hmm. got that inside me somewhere but um i suppose for a couple of reasons like i taught i taught for a number of years in western sydney at a school that by australian standards didn't have that much when compared to some of the schools that i've worked in overseas was ridiculously well resourced um but i think in general like when you use technical equipment there's an implicit message that it's somehow different from your everyday experience and you can see like wonderful things i mean i'm looking right now at my drink bottle that's got this interesting pattern of reflection and refraction as the light from the sun is passing through it mm. and we could look at that and you know construct different ways to analyze that scientifically and it's fascinating to see the different patterns of reflections that come off of from such a simple device and yet if you know, and yet you could also treat that using sophisticated equipment in an optics lab where we'd be observing the same phenomenon, but would, it wouldn't somehow strike us as being everyday, apart from being cheap and available. It just gives you an insight into the world around you so you can understand things and not... And when you learn things in a science mm. lab, they're not um, somehow distinct from how you experience your everyday life. Yeah, um, you, you don't have test tubes at home,
5: you don't have Bunsen burners at but, home, but the you don't chemist- have-
4: the chemi- sorry, the chemistry still works when you you know put detergent in your sink. It does the same as when you do an experiment with you know emulsions and surfactants in a in a lab.
5: You mentioned earlier that when you were um when you were younger, when you <laughs> when you were a I boy, thirty four the other day. Oh, so. congratulations, well, happy you birthday! Bien. You mentioned that when you were a boy, you wanted to be a mathematician. I think when you grew yes. up, um, did you have any? scientific idols that you looked up to or are there any scientists now that you respect
4: or that you hold in high esteem for their work? Certainly a lot of them and and one I was sort of self-consciously referencing earlier when um, I talked about it not being important what the name of something is and that would be um, Richard Feynman who was one of the um, probably the second half of the century the biggest the most famous and most intelligent physicist at least that I know of and who I've Read read a bit about, and I find really remarkable person. He tells one story about um, when he was a boy himself, and I really relate really strongly to this story and how I teach science and how I think about things. Um, and which being out with his dad, and he and uh, the young son asked what the name of a bird was, and his dad said, "Oh, in this, you know, in Japanese it's called this, and in Chinese it's called this, and in Spanish this bird's known by this name." And he went through all these different names. And he said, at the end of it, you'll, you'll know the name of it and you'll know a lot, of bit, a lot about human beings, but you won't know anything about the bird. So the name of, the name of things is you know, convenient and makes it easier for us to talk about it, but doesn't tell you anything about what it really is.
0: That was Scott Daniel talking to Patrick Ruby. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to know more about physics, banana leaves... Or if you'd like Patrick Ruby's phone number, and I know you do, send us an email here at Diffusion. It's diffusion at 2ser.com. It's the sound of
1: sound.
0: Mark West has been kind enough to bless us with his presence this week. Welcome, Mark.
2: Jackie, I'm glad to be here.
0: Now, Mark, you've brought along a rather hard sell this time. Uh, Mark's promised to tantalise us with the biggest mathematics stories in 2008.
2: Yes, last year I actually worked as editor of a maths magazine and you might think this is a nerd alert, but it was in fact really good. And so I thought maybe this week I'd talk a little bit about the five biggest maths stories from last year, and I'm sure you're, you were all keeping up with your maths news over the last year. See, I think that the, the biggest mathematical story from 2004 was uh, two thousand and four. 2008, going going backwards, was the uh, global financial crisis. The old GFC. The old GFC. I didn't know it had an acronym yet.
0: Mm, That's because you're probably still employed.
5: Oh. Yeah, that's right.
2: I wish. You student. (laughs) (laughs) We see the GFC, people are blaming it on many things, toxic loans, greedy bankers. A lot of people, though, are blaming it on mathematicians. Now I blame it on the mathematicians. Well, maybe you won't after we go through this story. Mm -hmm. See, the GFC has a backbone of three major points. The first point is that in the US and in Australia, and I can attest to this, there's a very strong societal pressure to buy your own home. It's fuelled by the idea that housing prices never fall, low interest rates, ideas regarding how you must get into the housing market, And it's probably helped along by a current generation, Generation Y, that doesn't mind a bit of debt, not to mention the ease at which you could get credit in the early 2000s. I'm sure we all were offered credit cards without actually having to prove that we earned any money. Mm. I still get offered credit cards. I still get American Express gold credit cards offered to
3: me almost every month. I got it when I was on welfare. Goodness me!
2: Wow. So th- this was the this was the era of the early uh, of the early two thousands. Everyone could get credit. The problem with all this is that people who could barely afford the loans actually got them, and or they actually applied for them. And the second point is, the banks actually gave them the loans. So once housing prices started to fall, people had mortgages bigger than the value of their homes. These subprime loans failed to take into account that plenty of people could not afford to pay them back. And in the meantime, in the third part of the backbone of the GFC, banks and other financial organisations were getting clever with their financial instruments, and this is where some of the blame may lie with the mathematicians. Securities, backed by mortgage repayments, were repackaged as bonds and sold on to other banks, insurance companies, superannuation funds, governments, everyone. The credit derivatives market was huge, so everyone was operating in credit. Once housing prices started to fall, people couldn't pay back their debts, the banks didn't get their repayments, and this affected not only everyone who owned these mortgage-backed securities, but everyone who traded with somebody who owned a mortgage-backed security. And given credit was so easy to get, this was nearly everybody. And this is when companies such as Lehman Brothers started to fall, and governments had to jump in to bail them out. And my general feeling on the financial game is, you need to know about the risk, you need to be cognizant of the risks. And if you lose money, then it's your bad luck. But the problem here, is that not only have rich bankers failed, everybody's failed. Because everybody has been encouraged to put money into superannuation and they've lost money. And the problem here is that the system did not take into account the very risky business of lending huge amounts of money to people who may not be able to pay it back. Should the mathematical models have predicted this? Some people say that the models were fine, it's just that they were misused by greedy bankers blinded by their million dollar bonuses and not at all focused on the risks. On the other hand, perhaps the models should have taken into account the fact that although the risk of one person defaulting on their loan may be small, and therefore lots of people defaulting all at once might seem very small, there may be some underlying causes that cause lots of people to default at once, like we had here, and so therefore the risk of a crisis was not actually negligible. I was astonished one day when I heard a finance graduate friend of mine come up with this quote. She was reflecting on her time studying finance at university, and she said, The lecturer put up an equation, the theatre moaned, but the lecturer said, don't worry, this is the only equation in the course and you don't even need to know it. It sounds a lot like some of the science subjects
5: I studied in my (laughs) degree. They had all the equations there at the end in the examination paper.
2: You didn't really have to know know. them. But Um, these are the people that are managing your money, and apparently they don't need to know about the risks involved, or at least in this particular course. I
0: would want my financial manager to be able to balance an equation, at the very least, if not the books.
2: Yes, I agree. I agree. So that's my number one uh, point from the last year. The number two story from 2008. I call it the end of a mathematical era, because 2008 saw the death of American mathematician and meteorologist Edward Lorenz. I'm going
0: to be really blonde right now and say I've never heard of him.
2: Yes, you have. Listen, Lorenz was the father of chaos theory and discovered the Lorenz attractor that often occurs in chaotic systems. I
0: love the Lorenz attractor. No, no, wait,
2: there's more. (laughs) <laughs> Lorenz is perhaps best known for coining the term the butterfly effect. Oh, uh, oh. well, that I know that. That was a film starring uh, Ashton Kutcher. Oh. Quality film. Uh, whilst a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Lorenz, not Ashton Kutcher, developed the concept <laughs> that tiny effects in one part of a system can lead to big changes in another part of the system. The term butterfly effect first appeared in his 1972 paper, Predictability, does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? Oh,
0: I've guess. always heard it in, um, like, I don't know, Thailand and a hurricane hitting in New York. But
2: Well, it's the same principle. Yeah. Different location. Though. Different location, yes. Uh, here, this is not going to be no good for radio, but there is a picture of the Lorenza tractor for everybody here. looks Mm. a bit like a butterfly, doesn't it? Fascinating. It does look like (laughs) like a butterfly, doesn't it? So there you go. Number three, I have solving tough old problems. In particular, a problem, and this is for the maths geeks out there, the road colouring problem. 63-year-old Abraham Trackman has solved one of the current generation's toughest mathematical problems, the 38-year-old road colouring problem. The road coloring problem, which was first raised by Israeli mathematician Benjamin Weiss in 1970, is a problem concerning synchronized instructions and is expressed simply like this: A man reaches a town he has never visited and drives around trying to find his friend's house. Despite the fact that there are no street names, his friend says not to worry and that he will provide instructions: turn left and right and left, etc., on how to get there. The road coloring problem postulates that no matter where the man starts his journey that is, no matter which part of the town he encounters first, whether he comes from the north, the south, the east, the west, doesn't matter, there is a set of instructions that will lead him to his friend's house. Wow. And there's another version of it. Well, the other version of it consists of a lost email somewhere on the internet. The sender wants to make sure it's delivered to the right place, no matter where it already is, and you can deliver instructions to this email, you know, go here, 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 and it will find its way there no matter where it is.
0: And this got solved.
2: And this got solved.
0: It sounds like rubbish, because I can imagine someone entering Sydney and getting totally lost.
2: Yes, well... It would take
0: millions of years.
2: This is the fascinating part of the, the question.
0: Oh, how long would it take to find the house?
2: Well, I don't know that much. Oh. You'll have to read the original paper. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty likely. It might be written in,
2: in in Israeli, but uh,
5: doesn't everybody have um? What's those systems you got in your car now that basically takes you wherever you want to go? The GPS, GPS. Isn't isn't that a way meters. of solving the equation? Just to a machine.
2: That <laughs> well, I guess we so. But it. then, but are well, what about esoteric mathematicians going to solve these days if we if we just give them all GPSs? Oh you've got me there, Mark. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that one. Well, number four on my list is uh, prizes. One of the most important international prizes for mathematicians in 2008 was jointly awarded to two outstanding mathematicians, even though one of them was originally unable to find a publisher for his groundbreaking work. Professor John Griggs Thompson of Cambridge and Florida Universities and Professor Jacques Tits of the College de France have been awarded the two thousand and eight Abel Prize worth five hundred and eighty thousand pounds by the Norwegian Academy of Sciences and Science and Letters for their profound achievements in algebra and in particular for shaping modern group theory.
0: What what is group theory?
2: What is group theory? It's an area of mathematics an area of pure mathematics concerned with groups, uh, so collections of numbers, for instance. Mm. It's very difficult to explain. I recommend you go to www.wikipedia.org <laughs> slash group <laughs> underscore <laughs> theory. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. That has, that's where we get all our answers from anyway, isn't it? Yeah, that? that's, that's, I'm actually reading. Yeah. That.
0: <laughs> and number five.
2: And number five, I am awarding the Mark West number five prize to uh, Silly Maths. 2008 saw some messages from aliens. If we are to believe the latest signs from outer space, the local aliens are keen mathematicians and work in decimal. A new crop circle appeared on the 1st of June in 2008 in a barley field near Barbary Castle in Wiltshire, England, measuring 150 feet in diameter and correctly representing the first 10 digits of the irrational constant pi. There you go. And...
0: Wait, hang on. What? What?
2: Well, it's a fascinating picture, actually. It's a circle, uh, which is divided up into areas that exactly match the decimal points of pi. So you've got the you know, 3.1415. So 1 is one section. Then there is a section which is 4 times larger, which is 4. And then the oh. next one's 1. The next one's 5 times larger, etc. First 10 wow. decimal points. So if we're to believe that, then the aliens... Work in decimal, which would be a fantastic coincidence, I think.
0: Or a lot of nerds have lawnmowers. A lot
2: of nerds have lawnmowers, yes. Um, That's about all I've got. Uh, So if anybody actually wants to point out any mathematical highlights from the year that we missed out on, perhaps they should email us at diffusion at 2scr.com, leave a message on the website. We've actually got a Facebook group, so you could join us on Facebook. And, uh, Jackie, are you a member of our Facebook group?
0: Of course I am.
2: Really? I don't believe you. Um,
0: I no, really. I'm Mark,
2: here. how could you say that? Yeah, that's only because I didn't realise we had a Facebook group till last time I was on air. Um, so <laughs> okay. yes, I'm now I'm now a member. And if you have any highlights, then why don't you let us know?
0: If 100 minus 100 equals zero, then that's how much time we have left on our show, and it's time to say goodbye. Diffusion has been produced by Patrick Ruby in the studios of 2SER Sydney. You can subscribe to our podcast at diffusionradio.com and you can send us some wild, passionate praise at our email address, diffusion2ser.com. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. You've listened to the velvet voices of Calvin Ng, Mark West, and Patrick Ruby. I'm Jackie Hayes. Join us inside your listening device of choice next week for more science wondering on diffusion.
1: Or he'll cap a pot in your ass He's so cultured Just pick up the phone and dial 3.141592653589793238462643383279